Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Good morning, or good evening, rather. I was determined not to do that. Good evening and Merry Christmas. It's so wonderful to see a, a room full of people gathered tonight to remember uh, the birth of our Savior. Uh, if you're new, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to this evening do what we always do as a church family when we get together, and that's take a little bit of time to open the Bible and hear what God would have to say to us. If you brought one, you can turn with me to the book of Philippians, and we'll be in chapter two. If you don't have one, underneath the seat in front of you, there are some blue Bibles, and in those Bibles, you could turn with me to page 570, where we'll take about 20 minutes to look at a passage together. That's page 570. Every December, uh, several prominent academic societies designate a word of the year. Maybe you're familiar with this. With elaborate research, they uh, set out to determine what specific term had the single greatest impact in that particular year. Here, here's two examples. The Cambridge Dictionary this year chose the word hallucinate. Now, not hallucinate from doing mushrooms, but hallucinate as in an, when an AI gets a piece of information wrong. That apparently is called a hallucination. Oxford disagrees. They say the word of the year is riz. Riz is short for something like charisma. It's what Jill says to me each evening when I get home. <laughs> my, oh my, Chuck, you have a lot of riz. Now, I'm no, uh, I'm no word of the year expert, but for what it's worth as an amateur, I think both Oxford and Cambridge missed it especially with that first word. I think they missed it. I don't think either one of those are actually the word of the year, at least around these parts. The word of the year around here is clearly unprecedented. Every time I turn around, something is causing someone to say that thing is unprecedented. Maybe you've caught this as well. And I don't think I've actually heard it used a single time about something that is unprecedented. We're infatuated with thinking our lives have no prior parallels at all. And yet, as the saying goes, there really is nothing new under the sun. You do realize that you haven't had an unprecedented meal, that that storm wasn't unprecedented, that this course you took or the next trial going on or a particular game, whatever your sport might be, none of those things have actually been unprecedented in 2023. However, don't take that to mean that nothing unprecedented has ever occurred. It has. In fact, we celebrate the truly unprecedented tonight. For the next 15 minutes or so, I'd like to talk with you about something 
that has only happened one time. It will only happen one time. And the significance of it is itself without parallel. The first section in Philippians chapter 2 is a lengthy teaching in which the Apostle Paul is telling Christians to think like Jesus so they'll live like Jesus. He tells them to take on the, the attitude of their Lord and Savior so that they too can live lives of sacrifice and servanthood and humility. That's the message of that full paragraph. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to, in the next few days, mark out some time to reflect on to what degree have you been committed to living like that this year. It would make a worthy aim for 2024. Think like Jesus so you'll live like Jesus. Now, for time's sake this evening, you only get me for 20 minutes instead of 40, like we normally have in the mornings. So I'm going to just focus in on a smaller portion of the passage. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11, which really hone in on the unprecedented thing Jesus did. So follow along with me, if you would, in your Bible. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted on him, him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The scope of these seven verses is truly stunning in the span of a mere 129 words. We hear things from Jesus' pre-existence before time began to the moment in time that he became also a human being in the first century. Then it fast-forwards through his life and death and by implication his resurrection. Then it talks about his return to heaven where he was enthroned and from where he'll be worshipped forever. And then finally, there's even a hint here of his return in which all people will recognize him as Lord. It's all here, just in seven verses. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you came at the right time because that's the Bible. That is the Bible in one paragraph. Friends, from these verses, we learn much about Christ and in particular tonight, I would love us to think about verse 7. Would you let your eyes glance back over it? And perhaps to help it stick in our minds, I'll read it one more time. It says, but Jesus emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Theologians call the historical fact of that verse the incarnation. That is, eternal God, creator, God himself, at a moment in time, fully joined in his creation by becoming human. Jesus emptied himself, thereby adding humanity to his deity. God became a Jewish baby to a teen mother and a carpenter husband. Voluntarily and happily, mysteriously yet purposely, the Jesus who has always been God in the incarnation also became a man. One glorious being, perfectly divine and perfectly human. This unparalleled selfless act is precisely what we've all gathered here tonight to remember and to celebrate. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why would God choose to also become human? As Mike pointed to in his prayer, it, it really is a rather insane idea, isn't it? That one who knows no bounds could also take on a body? It's unthinkable. No one self-depreciates that far. And yet Jesus did. Because the incarnation happened by God to God. Jesus voluntarily embraced what we might call the great stoop. God took on flesh. God left the glories of heaven for the slums of earth. Imagine Elon Musk forsaking all of his wealth and power. Now, he would never do that. But imagine he did. Picture him penniless, destitute, on the corner with the same clothes he's had on for the last three weeks. Even that is woefully insufficient as an analogy to help us consider what God did. One late Irish scholar described it this way, Christ Jesus brought the whole of his divine nature undiminished into a new and had it not been revealed to us in scripture, unimaginable state. Jesus enfleshed was God in a sense, incognito. But again, the question is, why? Why? Well, the very next verse tells us, verse eight, tells us in rather plain, clear language. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, God the Son added humanity to his deity so that by emptying and humbling himself, he could die. He could die on a cross in our place. The depth of his love and the extent of our need is what brought about this great stoop. Heaven to earth, divine to divine and human, 
Jesus became human to rescue sinners into a relationship with God. That was the only way it could be done. And therefore, he did it. Friends, that's what we're made for, a relationship with God. Life exists, you see, for, for knowing, for obeying, for imaging, for enjoying, for sharing Jesus. He's who our lives are for. But without exception, each of us have sought to make life about other things. Maybe that other thing is another person or a series of accomplishments or a certain amount of money in the bank or what you look like or how fit you might be or your riz. <laughs> the Bible calls the pursuit of all those things in place of God, sin. And so tremendous and offensive to God is this sin, so cosmic it's treason, that the scriptures tell us the thing we earn for it, the wages, the due payment, is death. Death is, of course, ultimately physical, but it's even while we live, the death being the separation we all experience from our Creator, unable to know and enjoy Him. And all hope is lost if that's where we stay. Yet Jesus stooped. God left heaven, added humanity, and then lived a perfect life of obedience to His Father. He demonstrated the truest humanity. And then in that humanity, he never sinned. And that made him qualified then to die on a cross in place of sinners. The incarnation is about the substitution of the God-man in place of people who deserve death so that all God's people would be freed from sin, given new life, forgiven of their treason, cleansed from their unrighteousness, welcomed into a warm, loving, eternal relationship with their creator. If all this sounds a bit too good to be true, then we're starting to actually get a sense of what Christmas is about. It's scandalous that the offended one would take on the offense himself so that the offenders could be welcomed into the family. This is the scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Christmas is about. It's what the Bible declares. It's what your life is for, to know God. Cambridge scholar and professor Richard Bauckham begins a tiny little book about Jesus with these words. He says, Jesus is undoubtedly the best known and most influential human person in world history. Two billion people today identify themselves as Christians with the implication that Jesus is the focus of their relationship to God and of their way to living in the world. 
Such followers of Jesus are now more numerous and make up a greater proportion of the world's population than ever before. It's estimated that they are increasing by some 70,000 persons every day. 70,000 new Christians may sound crazy to us because most of us, not all, but many of us here in the room are from the western half of the world. And yet in the east, Christianity is exploding. 70,000 new Christians daily does not prove Christianity is true. But it ought to give us pause before we merely dismiss it. Believer, I'd encourage you tonight to praise God for his great stoop. Jesus humbling himself that you might be lifted up. An unbeliever, one day you will recognize Jesus as Lord. Don't wait until that recognition is the recognition that it's too late. Too late to turn from sin and trust in him. You can do so tonight. You can confess your need for him. You can acknowledge that you have not lived for him as you ought. You can cast yourself on him in his mercy. Because he died and rose again, he is free and able to extend it, and he takes great delight in doing so. We encourage you to put your faith in him. Let's take a moment and pray, and before I pray for us, I'd encourage you to pray yourself.